0: Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free, and do not be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Indeed, I, Paul, say to you that if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. And I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised that he is a debtor to keep the whole law. You have become estranged from Christ, you who attempt to be justified by law, you have fallen from grace." For we, through the Spirit, eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but faith working through love. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and we ask you to have your Holy Spirit open our minds to receive uh, the truth of your word. And we pray, Lord, that you would uh, convict us of sins, that you would cause us to see uh, how righteousness uh, will prevail on this earth. And to do so, Lord, it will prevail in each of our hearts. And we thank you for this promise. We ask you to be with us now to bless our time together. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Maybe may be seated. In the first sentence here, the first verse, is the phrase, Christ has made us free. And so that's how the New King James renders it. Christ has made us free. And uh, the Revised Standard reads, For freedom, Christ has set us free. And the literal Greek reads, For freedom, us, Christ, freed. And when I read these other uh, alternate readings, it reminds me of a scene from Amistad. I think I shared this once a few years back. But uh, the movie, I almost thought I loved it. It it was an excellent movie, and yet I think I've learned that very few people have seen it or heard of it. Uh, But uh, it's the story of the slave ship that the slaves rise up and take over the ship, and uh, they end up landing off the coast of Massachusetts. And uh, the the, uh, slaves are then essentially held accountable for the fact that they overthrew their masters. And at one point after this, now in the movie, you don't realize this, but in the, in the book, in the real, in reality, you know that five years have passed. And yet at one scene, uh, what the, the slave, the spokesman, essentially, he holds out his hands and his hands are shackled as are all the slaves. And he just starts saying, free, free. And it's very moving. I think it's easy for us to belittle Uh, or to lessen the severity of what slaves must have felt how they lived Uh, in preparation for this actually i was listening to a, a story of harriet tubman and she was beaten when she was young and she was beaten so harshly that she had a scar that ran all the way across her skull and i forget what it was that she had done she had done something to talk back to the master but later, that didn't prevent her from becoming this, this female Moses that led uh, uh, slaves out of the South. And she had led hundreds of slaves to slavery, uh, I mean, out to freedom in Canada. And yet when she had first arrived and she had traveled what is known as the Underground Railroad, uh, she gets to freedom, and yet she came back to the last house prior to freedom. And uh, they welcomed her back. They said, yeah, we expected you. She said, you expected me. Why did you expect me? Well, we know that these people, you people want to be free. And we've seen many come and leave and they never come back. But in your case, we knew you would be back because we could see that you didn't just want freedom for yourself, you wanted it for your entire people. And that was just after them having spent a few evenings with her and and fed her and stuff. And so Freedom is something that we take for granted. And freedom is something that we do value, but I just don't know that we can really value freedom as much as a slave, as a former slave can value freedom. Now, not all slaves were courageous though like this. Her own brother, she tried several times to get to come with her and he wouldn't go. He was too afraid. He refused to travel with her until years after she'd already been freeing all these other slaves and finally he got up the courage to go with her. But so freedom is something that in our present-day culture we take for granted. We know we do. We value it. We sing about it. It might even move us to tears. And yet Unless we've been enslaved, we really don't appreciate what freedom means. And yet the reality is that for most of us, we have experienced slavery. The slavery that Paul is talking about. So now the verse says, Stand fast therefore in the liberty by which Christ has made us free and do not be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Do not be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. He's telling these Galatians, you are free but you are risk returning to bondage by what you're doing. Now, this is not unique to the Galatians. It's not unique to their culture. Every culture has bondage. And I'm not speaking about physical bondage. I'm speaking about bondage that your society is attempting to contain you as an individual, attempting to enslave you to its mores that are in opposition to God. That's just the way this world works. Since the fall, we've had this working against true believers. And so this is referred to as a yoke of bondage. And we know what a yoke is. A yoke is where you are harnessed in. You are put to the plow. You are working for somebody. When we are enslaved to evil, we are working for evil. We are working for evil forces on this earth. Now it also says entangled, entangled in this. And it reminded me of a book that I'm reading now that John Obermiller lent me called The Long Walk. And there are these seven men that have escaped this Siberian prison camp. And they've been, and, and I guess the vastness of the Siberian wilderness is just incredible. So these men have been walking for probably two weeks and they have not seen a soul. Now, of course, they're prisoners. And so they're trying to avoid all souls because they might reimprison them. But I mean, they haven't seen anybody. They've seen no lights, no cabins, no nothing. And so they come along and they, at first this one guy who's like the lookout he's like i hear music (laughs) and he's looking around and the others think he's kidding but they all come and like periodically they they just hear this tone come out this beautiful tone and so they walk expecting to find who knows what and what they see in the distance is a bear and there is a tree standing that has been struck by lightning and this bear is standing there, grabbing the big hunk of the tree that's extending up, pulling it back, releasing it, and then it's creating this beautiful harmonic. And the bear loves music apparently, because it's just standing there. And as soon as it stops, it it lets it go all the way down to where it's not making any more noise. And then it just reaches up there and bing. It's this musical bear out in the middle of Siberia. And so they wait until the bear leaves. The bear loses interest and leaves. And they go over there and there's one man that is just immense in their group. I mean, just the strongest guy. And he's trying to bend that thing back and he can't do it. I mean, the bear had just been there like bing, like plucking it like a banjo string. And he's climbed up here and he's trying to pull this thing back and he can't. Two of the other men help him and they have it make this tiny little sound. Nothing like the bear was doing. But so another thing though, that's not the entangled. That, That was just for your entertainment. But the entangled thing is the next thing that occurred to them. They continue on their walk, and suddenly they're traveling along, and, and it, for once, they had kind of massed up. They almost always avoided that because they didn't want everybody to get caught. But suddenly, in the midst of, in the midst of them all being massed up, they hear like just over the next riser or around the next bend, they hear all this commotion. And suddenly, they're very fearful. They thought, oh, no, we've screwed up. We've all bunched up like this. But then it stops. Two or three minutes of silence. And then suddenly, all this commotion again. And again, it stops. So they come around the corner and there is this huge elk whose antlers are stuck in underbrush. Now, these are prisoners. I mean, they've been eating bread for months. And so what they see is like what they show you in the cartoons. They see meat, they see a meal. And so that poor elk though, I mean, his antlers are stuck in there. And so what they went over to do, they actually tried to... uh, to uh, free, uh, free him, but not while he was alive. <laughs> that one of the guys executed him. Uh, the elk has now bled out, it's dead. But now they're trying to free him. They can't get him out of this thing. They actually have to take their ax and break his antlers off to drag him out of this. But that elk was entangled, like I believe Paul is warning us against getting entangled. Entangled with a yoke of bondage. That elk was in bondage. Now he was in bondage for their good. God had stuck that elk there for their uh, salvation really because they were cruising along and they needed food and they didn't have any weapons. All they had was the ax and you know you really can't hunt with an ax. Uh, animals are much faster and smarter than that. But they, they ate good for like, I forget, three or four weeks. I mean, they, they, they first they feasted. They, they ate as much elk as they could because they knew they couldn't carry it all and then they harvested it all and carried it away with them. But so that is what we are to avoid being entangled in. And note too, this elk was entangled, it was trapped, and it was there at their mercy. And that's the same thing we are when we are entangled in the yoke of bondage, in bondage to something other than God. You are then at someone's mercy, and that person is not, does not have your good at heart. Now, another thing that this reminds me of, this being entangled that came to mind, was this uh, second verse of A Mighty Fortress is Our God did we in our own strength confide our striving would be losing the 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 racket that that elk put up in in the midst of this vast silence was just amazing to these guys i mean it was expending all of its energy and then when they showed up and he smelled them coming and that's probably why he was thrashing he'd probably been resting for a while before he caught their scent and yet uh he just had expended himself and that's us isn't it that's us Attempting to do all things apart from God's strength, apart from God's wisdom, apart from us just relying upon God. We want to do things ourselves oftentimes. And we don't realize until we're exhausted that we haven't been coming to God at all. Now, I want to get back to the first phrase, though, because that's the title of the sermon, Stand Fast, Stand Fast, Therefore, in Liberty. Now, the word here is obviously a command, stand fast. And so what that means is it's an imperative. And it is a present active imperative, which means that Paul is commanding us to do this and to continue doing this, that this is something that will be difficult to do. This is something that you have forces operating against you to prevent you from being successful at doing this. So to stand firm requires effort. It requires energy. It requires exertion. So he's not telling us just to, to, to do nothing. He says that to stand fast like this, you have to be doing a lot, which is interesting because the result is that we're not, nothing is happening from what we can see. We're just standing fast. We're just remaining where we are, but we are maintaining our stability. We are maintaining what God wants us to maintain. So in the liberty, stand fast, therefore in the liberty. And and, uh, let me quote from D.L. Moody. Now, D.L. Moody was from the late 1800s, and he wrote of a former slave who who he had heard this story of. This was just after the Civil War. This former slave was confused about her status, and she had this to say, "'Now, is I free or been I not? "'When I go to my old master, he says, I ain't free. "'And when I go to my own people, they say I is free.'" and I don't know whether I'm free or not. Some people told me Abe Lincoln signed a proclamation, but Master says he didn't. He didn't have any right to. Now, I want you to think of this in the context of Christianity. When we are saved, we are freed from the bondage of sin. And yet, so often, we don't experience that freedom. We revert to sin. It still has a hold on us, just like this woman. This woman was so used to a life of slavery that she could not really relate and didn't know how to handle her former master barking out commands to her. Like sin barks out commands to us. We are saved. We owe no allegiance to that master. But it still has this hold on us that we must recognize in order to be able to deny The reality of it deny the strength of it so we have to recognize first that we're free such that we can then repudiate sin throw off its evil influences in our lives now another picture comes to mind when i hear stand fast and i'm sure for many of you it would and it's what you hear in war when especially in the olden days uh, when you just pretty much had lines of military formations and, and you're waiting for the enemy to attack you and your uh, commander is attempting to strengthen your resolve. Stand fast boys, stand fast. So now in this uh, civil war theme you have what is potentially hundreds of men running up the hill at you with their rifles and they're screaming. I'm told that the rebel yell was just awe-inspiring in terms of the fear that it would have come into the Union troops' hearts. I mean, these Rebs knew how to yell and they would, they would put fear into these Union troops' hearts. And the Union troops often were new because they kept recycling new ones in. You know, the Rebs had much smaller forces and so the men tended to be veterans after a short time, whereas the Unions were often having new troops fill in. So this is the first time they've heard this rebel yell. It's hard to stand fast when you're facing this onslaught this human wave that wants to kill you. And yet, the battle belongs to the Lord from Petra. When your enemy presses in hard, do not fear. Take courage, my friend. Your redemption is near. These men had to hold that line in order to accomplish what it was that they needed to do. They needed to overcome their fears just as God requires that we overcome all of our fears. He wants us to rely upon him. Your redemption is near. Think of this. Think of the... The Israelites. We are tend we tend to think uh, poorly of these poor uh, Jews that escaped Egypt. You know, we think of the fact that they all got killed later by God in the wilderness for being such such wusses. But put yourself in their shoes. They've been a kept people for generations. They are slaves. They think like slaves. They act like slaves. Moses has brought them out. He's brought them to the Red Sea. They're pressed up against this. They are in a position of vulnerability. And here they've got the whole Egyptian army coming at them with their chariots and with their advanced weaponry. What do they have? Well, they don't know God that well, so they don't know that they have the God who can command 100,000 angels to swoop in and kill their enemy. But so they're fearful. And it's exactly the situation that Paul is bringing to mind here. This is what evil does. It overwhelms us. We must go to God when evil overwhelms us like this. If you don't, your fears will overwhelm you. I want to read Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 4. Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. You have not yet resisted the bloodshed, striving against sin. When the Uh, Jews were afraid there beside the Red Sea. This is what Moses said. Do not be afraid. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. So see, when when he is commanding them to stand still, that's what we're being commanded. Stand fast. It is standing still. But you're not doing nothing. You're overcoming your fear. You are overcoming your inclination to run from what is about to attack you from what is perhaps now attacking you so standing fast is standing in the power of god it's standing in his strength and allowing him to fight for you so when you stand fast it's not that you're doing nothing you're doing all you can what's the motto of the state of new hampshire Live free or die. Excellent, Donald. Thank you. Live free or die. They adopted this motto in 1945. And yet, why did they adopt this motto in 1945? It is from a letter that a famous New Hampshire general wrote in 1809. And he wrote this letter to his former comrades in arms. He was going to be unable to go to the annual uh, commemoration of the Battle of Bennington. He had been the commanding general at this battle. Uh, Bennington is a city that's in Vermont and yet it borders New York. The, the battle was for the most part fought in the state of New York but what had happened was this. Uh, there was a uh, English uh, general by the name of Burgoyne who had just had some successful battles in recent months and he had been whipping the colonialists and they had heard that he was sending a force to Bennington to raid their weapons depot. And they had, and, and Burgoyne had heard correctly that ha- they had a minimal uh, militia guarding this city and this and this cache of weapons. And so the people heard about this, and so they, they basically asked their leaders, you know, help, help us. So what happened was this general, uh, this general uh, John Stark, uh, he... Uh, got permission from the the local uh, New Hampshire to go out and seek a militia. Within six days, he got a 1,500-man militia. Within six days, he had accumulated 10% of the uh, men that were over 16 in the state of New Hampshire to this force. And so now, their force of militia outnumbered the English. The English had about 1,400, and they were English, they were German, they were Uh, loyalists, Tories. Uh, There were 100 Canadians. There were Indian scouts. I mean, they had this huge disparate force, and yet uh, this General Stark called up this 1,500 force of militia. And there was also, they joined an existing militia of 700, which rendered it over 2,000 people. Now, you know the history of the Revolutionary War. You know the militia had often had difficulty facing the Redcoats, because the Redcoats were extremely uh, uh, hard and hardened soldiers and able to fight. And the Redcoats loved the fact that you could only fire one volley with your musket and then run at them with your sabers because they loved to kill people up close and personal. I mean, that's, they were soldiers. I mean, they, they, they lived like that. I mean, warfare hadn't changed for 2,000 years since the Romans. So they loved getting in there and fighting because then they'd rout these militia who were just not used to that. So in the battle though, they emerged victorious. And it was because of this wisdom of this John Stark. I mean, his tactics were superb. And so he ended up winning that battle. And what's interesting, though, is it was a decisive uh, colonial victory because just within days, the French came in on the war on the side of the Americans. After, like Ticonderoga, after other losses, the French had been reluctant to. But now the Americans have had this big victory. The Indians who were participating until that time on the side of the British, abandoned the British. They didn't want anything more to do with this. They thought that the British were not going to succeed, perhaps. But so this battle was uh, a a strategic turning point in the war because the very next month, Burgoyne lost uh, two major battles uh, in New York, which then was really the death knell of the the English attempts to take the uh, colonies for Great Britain. So... What happened, though, then is every year after that, John Stark would go and they would celebrate this annual victory at, at the Battle of Bennington, and now he couldn't. And this is what he wrote in his letter, and this is where the, the, f- this phrase comes from. He wrote back and he said, in closing, live free or die, death is not the worst of all evils. So he now no longer could travel back to visit all of his old soldier buddies, and so this is what he wrote to them. And I, why... Uh, New Hampshire invoked it in 1945, I don't know, but yet that is on their quarter, That is on that has been their state motto, and uh, this, I believe, is something that we can all learn from, live free or die. There are two components of this. There is what's in us, and there is this society that we're a part of. Uh, the other night at the Reformation Day celebration, I mentioned to everyone that the Reformation was really The resultant sanctification that was affecting all of these people, all of these people that were being saved by the grace of God, rescued from a very corrupt Roman Catholic church, were collectively reforming the church because they wanted it different. God was sanctifying them and he was using them to reform his church. And I mentioned that it's the same thing Jesus did. When Jesus came to earth, he was a protester. 1,500 years before the Protestants did it. He was protesting against the established Jewish traditions. He wasn't fighting against the religion God had established, but he was certainly fighting against the practices and the ways in which it had been corrupted. And see, that's what happens, though, to protesters. They get put upon. They get killed. They get persecuted. And so we must not back down from being protesters for God. It's what Jesus did. It's what the Reformers did. It's what Christians must do if they are true to their roots, if they are true to God. And you can see how passionate Paul is about liberty. Verse two, he says, indeed, I, Paul, I mean, he's emphasizing the fact, indeed, I, Paul, you know, I have all people, you know, who have been up to my eyeballs in works righteousness. I of all people want you to understand what you're losing as you walk away from the liberty that you've experienced with the gospel. And so again, there's this inward and outward aspect. There's what's occurring within us and there's how we're transforming society. Both of these are real. Both of these are God ordained. He says, if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. Now there's kind of a puzzle here. And I want you to peek ahead to verse six. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything. But if you read too literally, indeed, I, Paul, say to you that if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. In verse two, he's saying circumcision is very important. Don't do it. But in verse 6, he says, neither circumcision nor circumcision avails anything. So, what is it? Is it that circumcision is important, that I shouldn't do it, or else I'm at risk of something? Or is that, like verse 6, true? That it really doesn't matter. It doesn't matter whether you are circumcised or not, or get circumcised or don't. Why I really blew that. Circumcision. I do know how to pronounce it. So now, I want you to reflect on that god is always filling his word with puzzles he wants you to understand this so now you have to ask yourself why why is the person getting circumcised in verse two to be saved that's what he thinks he's participating in an outward work that he believes will make him right with god something outward doesn't have anything to do with his heart doesn't touch his heart He's just doing what he thinks he has to do to go along to get along and get right with God. It's the same thing the reformers opposed in the 1500s. The Roman Catholic Church had been lording this over people. You've got to do this. You've got to do that. You've got to do this other thing. Anytime they wanted money, they would send the rounds out, almost like a tax collector. You know? Your guilt costs more this month because we have bills to pay. Uh, it's, just, it's just such a horrendous abuse of the power of the church. And two, in verse three, it says, "And I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised that he is a debtor to keep the whole law. Again, we see here that circumcision is important this This person is taking upon himself all of this responsibility to keep the law. There's a phrase in for a penny in for a pound that 's what this means. It means that hey, if you're going to buy into works righteousness for this, that means you need to go all the way. you can't go part way you've got to go all the way." And so those that embrace the law of necessity must let go of the alternative means, which is grace. So if you embrace works, you're letting go of grace. You're you're taking the one to abandon the other. And see, the Jews loved the law. They loved works righteousness. And yet, they loved 80 or 90% of the law. And the other 10 or 20%, they just manipulated until they liked it. And so, for instance, you read about how they made policy about how, well, a Sabbath day's journey is this and I can't travel more than that or else I would be breaking the law. Therefore, I consider my property my home and I will bury cans of my property every 500 yards or so around the city. So that way I can go anywhere I want in the city and I'm still home because my property is there. I mean, talk about crazy. I mean, obviously God wouldn't have implemented it like that. But that's the way they got around these things. As they got into parsing out their laws and saying, you're guilty of violating God's law and I'm going to hold you accountable. And people would accuse them of the same. Oh no, I'm, I'm exempt because of this, that, or the other thing. So they would, they would, just as Jesus said, they would place all these burdens on the people, but yet they themselves were not helping the people to carry those burdens. They were only wanting to oppress them. In Christ's day, that was what the church did. In the Reformers' day, that was what the church did. And we think now that because there's this kind of easy grace in our church, that that isn't coming, but it will. Works righteousness will displace what you now see in the the, uh, easy grace church movement, because it has to. This can't survive, because it's abnormal. What is a more normal, dumbed-down, non-gospel-enriched, uh, environment is works righteousness that's what everybody understands around this globe in their heart from the from the the most isolated indian community in the mountains of new guinea they know their righteousness with god comes from what they do because that's just the way god wired us and so we fall prey to that and it will come around in this country again from what we now have and experience. Now, again, let's let's let's, uh, go into this uh, circumcision thing, though. Um, Timothy was circumcised, right? He had Timothy circumcised. Timothy was not a Jew. Timothy was a Greek. He had one parent that was a Jew, but he had one parent that was a Greek, and he had never been circumcised. And yet, Paul had Timothy circumcised. In Acts 16.3, we read of that. So circumcision is important to Paul, right? And yet when the Judaizers in Galatians 2, 3 earlier, a couple chapters ago, tried to make sure that Titus was circumcised, Paul said, no, no way. He's not getting circumcised. Isn't it odd? But it has to do with why. What is the purpose behind the circumcision? If you remember, the purpose behind getting Timothy circumcised was that he could accompany Paul into the temple. Paul just wanted him in the temple. It was a very practical reason for him to have Timothy be circumcised. What? Yet, when the Jews wanted Titus circumcised, it was that he would be saved. He's impure. He can't be in our midst because he's an unbeliever. And he's an unbeliever. We know it because he's not circumcised. And that's where Paul drew the line. No, no, he's a believer. He is a believer and you're not going to circumcise him. Because, see, these are Jews that are actually saying that they're following Christ and yet they want it both ways. They want the law, and yet they want the freedom of the gospel. And, and Paul is very clear in saying, no, you cannot have both. This is an either-or thing. This is not an and. It's either-or. And he goes on in verse 4 to say, you have become estranged from Christ. You who attempt to be justified by law, you have fallen from grace. Now, this is the only occurrence of this phrase in the Bible, and yet we know this phrase in our culture. To fall from grace is something that many Christians believe can happen. That a person can be saved today, and yet a week from now be unsaved. A week later, they're saved again. A week later, they're unsaved. See, that's just really a repetition of Roman Catholicism. That's exactly what they taught. They said, you can never, ever be sure of your salvation, of your standing. That's why purgatory came into being. It was a means of making sure that while you might still worry about the pain that you and your loved ones will suffer, oh, you can get there eventually. It only means you have to work that much harder, give that much more money to the church, whatever it is. But yet, it was a means of laying the guilt on them, but yet, laying the solution that they can then work out and, oh, by the way, benefit the church in enacting. So this is what he's saying. You have become estranged from Christ, you who attempt to be justified by law. You have fallen from grace. So what does he mean? Does he really mean that you've lost your salvation? Well, Paul doesn't know any more than you or I who is or isn't saved. Right? He was a man. He couldn't know that you were saved. He couldn't know that you weren't saved. So what is he talking about then? He's talking about fruit. Just what we talk about these days. We generally tend to say, well, that person isn't a believer. And yet if we get to know them, we might realize, oh, they go to church regularly. They do this, they do that. But yet from the fruit we see in their life, they don't appear to be a believer. But when we say they aren't a believer, we're just saying what our eyes are conveying to us what the appearance of the absence of fruit in that person's life makes clear to us. We can't know for sure. And so that, that is, is, I believe, exactly what Paul is doing here. He is saying, you have fallen from grace. What is he saying? He said, you're not work, walking by grace through faith then if you're acting this way. You've fallen from the path that you should be on in acting this way. And the path that you should be on is grace. Therefore, you've fallen from the path of grace. You've fallen from grace you're not taking the road of grace anymore you're off it but i know many christians who aren't always walking on the path of grace they're either confused or they're backslidden but there are people that i believe are generally confused genuinely confused that are believers we just don't know and so we go to them we try to convince them of the error of their ways in the hopes that God will grant them repentance, lead them back to the path of grace, were they truly a believer? I don't know. Are they truly a believer? We don't know. All we know is what we see. And so we just preach at them until perhaps they get upset with us. And then then we have to stop preaching at them maybe. So now, also, another thing that is common, and I believe this is all too common for Christians. I do it myself. I think I do it all the time. But we think that our works, our efforts put God in our debt. I know to say it that bluntly, you think, oh, no, no, I don't do that. You may be, I don't know. But, uh, you know, there was a, about a year ago, there was a pro football wide receiver who, uh, he plays for the Buffalo Bills, I don't know if he still does, but uh, in a game in overtime, he has passed the ball and it hits him right in the hands in the end zone and he drops it. And in a tweet right after the game, he's a Christian, he says this, I praise you 24-7, and this how you do me? You expect me to learn from this? How? I can't learn from this. But then immediately people jumped on him about it and he recanted. Now I must admit though too, in his text, right at the end of his text, he says, thanks though. I don't know why he said that, but I mean, he appears to be venting with God (laughs) But then saying thanks, though, as if he's going to change the, you know, the point and, and minimize what he has written. It's almost as if he's already beginning to repent of what he's written. But I believe that's not atypical for us Christians. We all tend to do this. We all tend to think because I'm walking right with God, because I'm doing this, and we think the reverse. I didn't have my devotion today. That's why I'm having a bad day. That's why all these people are being jerks to me, you know. It's like, "Oh yeah, God's just waiting to do that to you, isn't he?" You know. "Oh, I didn't have your devotion today." Well, phew, take that. Take that banana peel." You know. <laughs> it's like, mm, "I don't think so. I think God's a little more mature than we give him credit for." So there might be reasons that you face a banana peel that day, but I really don't think it was due to your lacking devotion. Those things tend to accumulate over time. I I agree. Our attitude towards the difficulties we face is much better if we're walking with God. Whereas if we're not walking with God, our attitude towards things, it deteriorates, doesn't it? I mean, we just become more and more like the world. We, we look more and more like unbelievers. And therefore, we must cut people the same slack that we really we should expect from them. Because we can't always be judged by our outward character to be believers based on what people see, the average unbeliever on the street or any, any person on the street. Now, even when young we think like this Uh, again i I don't know if i shared this i don't think so but long ago when i was a boy in my home my mom listened to country music and country music still makes me cry i mean these people know how to tell tear-jerker stories in you know like two minutes but there's this boy and he comes to his mother and he hands her a list and he says for mowing the lawn i I want you to give me four dollars for making my bed i want you to give me one dollar and he has this whole list he's obviously saving money for something and in the end he writes the total owed 1475 now he's sprung this on his mom this was no deal this was just him keeping track of all this stuff and so the mom takes the paper over and writes on the back for carrying you for nine months no charge for the nights i sat up with you while you were ill no charge for the times that I've cried with you, I've prayed over you, no charge. The full cost of my love to you, no charge. And so then the boy gets this slip handed back to him. You know, his, his mother has taught him a lesson in gratefulness. His mother has taught him a lesson in what love means. Love can't be enumerated in terms of these values that he wants to ascribe to them. It is priceless. And so now we have, of course, uh, one of the credit card companies that has taken advantage of that pricelessness of love, right? And so they eagerly market it on, our, on all of our commercials. This, 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 is that priceless. And so they know it. They know it. They appeal to us by, by appealing to that nature within us that can, that can see that, that some things cannot be purchased. And they're admitting to that at the same time trying to uh, slip, slip in there that we need them. Now, verse five says this, We, through the Spirit, eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. We eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. Now, we know, we know that we are justified in Christ the moment we believe. We know this. And yet, we also know that lifelong is a process of sanctification by which God is transforming us into his image more and more and more. And yet... Even though we stand righteous before God, even now, from the moment the blood of Christ has cleansed you, you're righteous before God and you remain righteous before God. We know, though, that there is a fulfillment of that. There is a day coming when you will be cleansed from all of your sin. And the righteousness that at this point is imputed to us and God uh, essentially uh, sees us through the lens of Christ's righteousness and holiness He will purify us completely and we will be righteous before him. And so that's exactly what he's referring to here. For we through the spirit eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. This is something that is yet to come. This is something that will culminate in our lives and on this earth and throughout all eternity where sin will be vanquished. Sin will be no more, no unrighteousness, no unholiness. And I want to focus here on just Two words in verse six. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but faith working through love. And I want to focus on just the words in Christ. Long ago, as a young Christian, when I started writing letters, I didn't know how to end them. Sincerely, just seemed so formal, so cold, when I'm writing to a fellow believer. And I started signing my uh, notes... weren't emails at that point i don't think that was in the early 80s but i would sign them in christ and then put rod and i forget if i saw someone else sign it like that i don't know but i love that simple closure of a statement because i'm stating there so much in just those two little words i'm stating first a reality i believe it i fully believe it people i write to might not but i'm in christ And so I'm also, though, stating a hope that I long to be further in Christ, completely in Christ, enveloped by Christ, living for him. So now we are on this earth passionate about many things. People, People really have a lot of passions, a wide variety of them. But the believer as being in Christ and the unbeliever, as not being in Christ, these are two fundamental things that should drive our passions. Us being in Christ should be the passion of our life, I believe. People are passionate about everything. Celebrities want fame. The wealthy want more wealth. Politicians and the powerful want more power and influence. Muslims pretty much want to convert or kill anybody that refuses to be converted. And they're passionate about that they're carrying that out now i just listened to a book called uh, the infidel's guide to the koran and i want to do it again i want to read it again and as i as i read it uh, mark up all the in my in my uh, koran that i have because i i do work with muslims at my work they're probably nominal muslims just as there are nominal christians and yet I really do believe it's, I'm in a unique position to be able to share with them what I've learned about the Quran and just see what their views are on it. Because I believe any true devout Muslim is led down the path to the jihadist view of Islam. They do mean to take over the world for Allah. And they believe that anybody who is not faithful to Allah deserves to die. They, they must be subjugated. And yet, if they refuse to be subjugated, they must die. So see, Muslims are passionate. Environmentalists are passionate. Oh, they want to exterminate the humans, save the earth for the ants, right? I mean, environmentalists are just rabid about this. We are a plague on the earth, and we are to be contained and controlled. And they're largely getting a lot of power in governments to do just that. So what are you passionate about? What are Christians to be passionate about? I believe it's about being in Christ. And if the fact that you are in Christ doesn't fuel you, it doesn't fuel your relationships, fuel your emotions, fuel your day-to-day activities, then it's probably that you need more passion. You need to understand more deeply who God is, who you are, why he saved you. He didn't just save you to give you a ticket to heaven and you bury it somewhere in your wallet until you need it one day. No, you're to be different from day one. You're to live for him. You're to pour yourself out as a sacrifice to him. So I ask you, are you as passionate about being in Christ as you are passionate about, let's say, liberty or whatever your other passions are on this earth? Are you as passionate about Christ as about college football? Are you as passionate about Christ as about the purchase of whatever it is, the next big thing that you have on mind to purchase? Um... If not, then it's really just reflecting an opportunity for you to grow more deeply into Christ. So I ask you to stand fast in liberty. If you stand fast in liberty, you will stand by the power of God's grace. And that's the only way that we can stand against the evils of our day. And yet we do that as we humbly recall and admit our sinfulness, and our need for God daily. I loved a lot of this worship service. I loved Gary's prayer of supplication. I think he really hit the nail right on the head. Uh, We need to submit ourselves to God, and and, uh, reading something like the Valley of Vision each day to get us engaged with God is a wonderful way for us to remember who we are and how we need to live each day of our lives. And so let's pray. Father, we ask you to make this so. uh, We thank you for your word, for the passion of Paul Uh, for your passion that uh, filled his sails and you promise uh, can fill our sails as well Uh, we pray lord that your holy spirit would fill us with a desire to please you with a desire to do your will and we pray lord that all earthly passions will pale by comparison Uh, just as earlier when i talked about the leaves and how much more so the birth of a baby uh, makes the beauty of the leaves pale Uh, we know lord that the passion of who Christ is, of what he has done, makes everything, by comparison, pale. And so we pray that you would energize us uh, to serve you with thankfulness and with humility. In Jesus' name we pray and ask your blessing. Amen.